New video released in day three of the Derek Chauvin trial. You can see George Floyd inside a store where he went to buy cigarettes. It was that purchase that prompted a call to police. The clerk who sold Floyd the cigarettes suspected that the money that was being used was counterfeit. Moments later, Floyd was arrested outside of that store. While on the stand today, the clerk from the store testified that he has felt guilt for calling police. Today, we also heard from more bystanders who witnessed Floyd's death. ABC's Trevor Alt has the latest from the courtroom. Jurors in the trial of former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin hearing today from Christopher Martin, the clerk at Cup Foods who received the counterfeit $20 bill from George Floyd on the day he died. When I um, saw the bill, I noticed that it had a blue pigment to it, kind of how a $100 bill will have, and I found that odd, so I assumed that it was fake. The prosecution playing surveillance video from both inside and outside the store. Barton described how he felt that day. Uh, disbelief. And guilt. Why guilt? Um, if I would have just not taken the bill, this could have been avoided. The jury also hearing from Christopher Belfry, who recorded the incident from his car. We've seen them placing him in the police car, so that's all I've seen in them. Kept on driving. I thought he was detained. I thought it was over, so I kept on going home. Over the past three days, the jury has heard from numerous witnesses to Floyd's death, including Genevieve Hansen, a firefighter and EMT who was off duty that day and begged officers to let her help. And when you couldn't do that, how did that make you feel? Totally distressed. Frustrated? Yes. Darnella Frazier, the teenager who recorded that now viral video of Floyd's death, also took the stand. I heard George Floyd say, <clears throat> I can't breathe, please get off of me. I can't breathe. He, he cried for his mom. He was in pain. It seemed like he knew. Chauvin is facing manslaughter and second and third degree murder charges to which he has pleaded not guilty. Three other officers involved in Floyd's death go on trial later this year. Trevor Alt, ABC News, New York. Gentlemen of America, this is AJC Radio, where we bring the message of justice all around the world. Tonight, our final part two series of Where Are We Now Since the Killing of George Floyd? Where are we as a nation? Where are we as a criminal justice system? Tonight, we focus on two very important elements. The element number one is to deal with how is the treatment of inmates in prisons been affected by the death of George Floyd, not only before his death, but also after, and what is going on in this country where people are blatantly disregarding human life. Part two, where are we now after the death of George Floyd? We take off right now. Uh, 
And there you have it. I'm Lamont Banks along with David Banks, Demetrius Harper, Dave Zapolo, Kendrick Barnes, Sampson Riddle, Clinton Stewart, and the entire AJC radio team tonight as we address these issues. As we are very much aware that we, we were under the impression, or many were, that perhaps the death of George Floyd, even though it didn't coincide with history, would trigger change. We have not seen the change that we should be seeing. Actually, we've seen a blatant disregard for human life at another and at a very high level again. And why is that? Samson, your thoughts? Well, just to see the fact that, I mean, it's only been a little over a year and literally nothing has changed in our in our uh, criminal justice system, the DOC or anything else like that. In fact, like you said, it's gotten worse. The, the fact that, you know, um, it seemed like there was a little bit of change for a moment, but now we're, we're right back to square one, if not worse than before, you know, when, when he was that before that bar, that viral video was released. I mean, it's sad the fact that, you know, the people that were out there crying out for justice and everything else like that, it seems like the system has now brushed them aside and everything that was fought for, everything that we stood for, it seems like they're doing everything they can to just sweep it under the rug, push it aside. And, and not do anything about it. But the fact of the matter is, is like we as an advocacy organization, along with others around the country, we had to keep pushing because if we go silent, then they win and we're going to be in a worse state than when we started. Well, I'll tell you right now, we talked before on this show, the treatment of inmates, uh, even with the COVID, uh, the George Floyd and COVID situation were really uh, kind of hand in hand with as far as major events happening uh, and the prison system, not only the Bureau of Prisons in Washington, D.C., but state and local jails, uh, we were addressing and dealing with issues, uh, basically a no-care attitude to inmates, that their lives didn't matter. Uh, we find before the death of George Floyd, the absolute abuse of prisoners, the abuse and killings of people taken into county jails, uh, being basically going into county jail for two or three days, but coming out in a body bag. What and why does that happen? It speaks that the culture has touched every part of American society, and that's something that we definitely have to deal with. Dave Zapolo. When you look at what everything that was going on in the prison system and what's going on today, it just keeps getting worse and worse. I'm just looking at an article here. A few days after we got out of prison last year, the Federal Bureau of Prisons put their whole system on full lockdown because of protests that were occurring out in the real world as opposed to in the prison. And you look at that and you see that they were already on partial lockdown because of COVID. Now you lock them down completely because people are protesting out in Denver or any place else in America. It wasn't, it wasn't because of protests in the prison. It was just so that they could abuse the inmates and, well, they're not locked down enough because of COVID. Let's see if we can lock them down more. No, good point made with that, and it's absolutely inexcusable. Uh, the bottom line is is that if you think you can hide this story from prisoners and inmates about what happened to George Floyd, there's going to be outrage, uh, as it should be. Uh, at the end of the day, they have, you have a right to have an opinion. I don't care if you're locked up or not. You have a right to have an opinion that you're – um, uh, inmates witness the killing. See, they don't want that exposed, but we don't want to bring temperatures and tensions uh, at the prison at a certain level. The bottom line is uh, our culture 
is in decay. And when you can watch a man die on national television over and over and over again, begging for his life, and now you want to raise tensions even higher in the prison system with inmates being locked down as worse than animals, worse than animals, uh, it's absolutely horrific. And we're going to deal with that. David, your thoughts? Well, I just think, uh, honestly, something else always has to happen. Everybody gets to, gets uh, up in arms about a certain story, and they just kind of fall back into their, their relaxed, comfortable positions. Uh, everybody's excited, but until you actually put together some real legislation, I'm not even sure if the legislation in the George Floyd Act uh, is actually enough. Uh, you really have to change the culture and behavior of both police and prosecutors to really change it. And in essence, you have to change judges. Uh, sadly, that's just the, the system we're in, and that culture is baked in, uh, has been baked in for decades, if not hundreds of years, in the way uh, uh, men render justice uh, in this country. Well, we're going to deal with that. We're also going to play some clips tonight, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, of actions of correctional officers, of officers, excuse me, and deputy sheriffs that have taken the life and abused uh, inmates prior to George Floyd, and why this culture is embedded in our society as it is, is because nobody spoke up, nobody said nothing about it. Just Cause is going to deal with it tonight at Agency Radio. Feel free to dial into the show at 646-200-0628, 646-200-0628. Where are we now as a country, as a society, and as a human race since the death of George Floyd? Tonight, we focus on two issues. Deputy sheriffs and county jails across this country, prison abuse of inmates all across the land. This is IGC Radio. We'll be right back. Do you know anyone who's been sent to prison who's innocent? The United States is experiencing record numbers of exonerations in cases where people were wrongfully convicted of crimes they did not commit. If you believe that no one should be sent to prison for crimes they didn't commit, there is something that you can do today. By remembering a just cause with a monthly, annual, or one-time donation, you can help in the fight against wrongful convictions. Call a just cause at 855-529-4252 or visit a-justcause.com and click the donate button. A Just Cause is a 501c3. Wrongful convictions are wrong. Let's be the voice of those who can't speak from behind the wall. We have a big problem and we need your help. It's happening on college campuses, at bars, at parties, even in high schools. It's happening to our sisters and our daughters, our wives and our friends. It's called sexual assault, and it has to stop. We have to stop it. So listen up. If she doesn't consent, or if she can't consent, it's rape, it's assault. It's a crime. It's wrong. If I saw it happening and I was taught you have to do something about it. If I saw it happening, I speak up. If I saw it happening, I'd never blame her. I'd help her because I don't want to be a part of the problem. I want to be a part of the solution. We need all of you to be part of the solution. This is about respect. It's about responsibility. 
It's up to all of us to put an end to sexual assault. And that starts with you. Because one is too many. I stand for peace. I stand for diversity. I stand for dignity. I stand for respect. 
I stand for fairness. Back, ladies and gentlemen, to AJC Radio tonight, uh, dealing with a very important topic, the finale, if you will, of our part two of our series is where are we now as a nation uh, since the death of George Floyd? Uh, we will address issues tonight. What's happening in our criminal justice system, in our prisons, in our county jails? Why were the numbers as high as they were with people dying in custody, people being tortured? Uh, in federal prisons, state prisons, uh, on a consistent basis by correctional officers. Uh, tonight we deal with that side of things as we go down this avenue, Demetrius. Your thoughts of even some of the stuff that during your wrongful conviction, the things that happened there, give us your thoughts of how troubling is it, uh, and we, we can't help but go to um, uh, some of the people that have died behind the wall. It's a lot of folks that have that have died, and, and just what you've witnessed, things that you've seen. Uh, give us your thoughts on that. Well, Mont, the first thing that the prison administration abhors the inmate. They look at them as a worse than a piece of trash. And anytime anyone has a medical issue, we've seen it firsthand. People had heart—I mean, literal heart attacks—and they sat at that they call the bubble for 12 hours. Men and men are dying. And they t- when they do take them, as Dave mentioned earlier, they get them to the hospital. Uh, they said you should have came here eight hours ago. But this prison staff, and I think that's for the most part the BOP, unfortunately, because we witnessed it for eight years, they don't care about human life. 
um, and we were wrongly convicted, but we saw it firsthand where they didn't even have uh, defibrillators. Uh, one guy had died, and then two weeks later, they have defibrillators all over the campus locked. So if someone drops dead or has a heart attack, you got to go get a CO, correctional officer, to open it up. By that time, those are precious minutes when someone has a heart attack. So to your point with the COVID, they don't care about the inmates. They could care less about their family members. They don't care about folks protesting when these things are wrong. And like David mentioned last week, it continues. This cycle is a vicious cycle. They, there is no humanity. And unfortunately, you'd have to get someone as a BOP director to actually cares about these inmates. And we just don't have that. Tennessee cops, I'll share this story with you. Tennessee cops mocked dying man's plea, I can't breathe. Back in May 22nd, a U.S. jail inmate died gasping for breath minutes after police officers held him face down with one taunting, you shouldn't be able to breathe. New footage from the Tennessee facility shows how William, William Jeanette, 48, was pinned down and tied a year ago. Help me. He pleaded with other staff at Marshall County Jail in Lewisburg. They're going to kill me. Esfiskia was listed as con, con, uh, contribute, uh, contributing factors cause of death due to the officer's use of the prone restraint. Ms. Jeanette's official post-mortem examination was ruled a homicide with acute uh, combined drug intoxication, also listed by the medical examiner as cause of death. The prone restraint was most recently under scrutiny in the police murder of George Floyd, a black man in Minneapolis, Minnesota, about a year ago, 19 days after the death of Mr. Jeanette, the daughter of Mr. Jeanette, who was white, has filed a federal civil lawsuit over law enforcement practices in the father of five's death uh, on May 6, 2020. In their lawsuit, which named seven officers as defendants, the Jeanette family alleges excessive force was used at the jailhouse located 70 miles south of Nashville. All he wanted was help, and all he got was hate, his daughter, uh, Callie Jeanette, stated. Ms. Jeanette was pinned down with an officer's weight on his back for a total of four minutes. According to the lawsuit, officials had defended their handling of the incident, saying Ms. Jeanette was extremely unruly. Police said the inmate became unruly. State prosecutors closed an inquiry into the death several months ago. Now, somebody help me understand one thing. If you feel that this was justified, why would you make the statement to this man you should not be able to breathe? Which shows to me a high level of intent to kill this man. Uh, you're mocking him based upon the death of George Floyd uh, and how he died, which I don't know how anybody who saw the death of George Floyd would make that statement. But as I said at the beginning of the show, this stuff has it has always been in the correctional uh, side of, the, of, of prison as well as county jails. There is a no-care attitude with inmates with some of these officers. Uh, that is absolutely outrageous, and as normal, they're protecting the blue. They're protecting whatever their actions are versus saying, you know what, we have a problem. That's why we continue to see what we see. David? Well, <clears throat> you have to understand, this is the BOP and prisons are a microcosm of society. There's many, and you can just go across the country to see how just felons, even ones that got out of prison, how they're treated, how nobody really cares whether they uh, whether they live or die in many instances. And you're seeing how people are treating people just because they don't get the vaccine. Well, it's 10 times worse. You're a felon. 
that's stig- you got a stigma associated with not getting the vaccine where people are are uh, treating people like garbage, uh, wanting to literally filled with hatred because you choose not to get a vaccine. Now, the the same type of stigma exists. Well, he's a felon. Well, he's unvaccinated. If you can, if you can imagine just to disdain some people talk about the unvaccinated, even if they have natural immunity, they don't even know these people. Um, and that same sort of despise and hatred for somebody who had a felony conviction exists. America as a nation has a has a serious problem with the way they view uh, those that are incarcerated. They, they broke well, they broke a law. Okay, yeah, and nobody should be breaking. Nobody's justifying people breaking the law, but people do a lot of wrong things and never go to prison. But because you, you label them that they violated some law, it doesn't matter uh, if the law was it wasn't even a violent crime. It really doesn't matter. Uh, you you face the same hatred and same stigma. Uh, and and that's why off, uh, correctional officers act the way they do, because many in society really don't care uh, what happens uh, to people in prison. Well, it states here on the death on the day of his death, officials say he began to bang his fist on the door. Common behavior in prison, in county jail. You bang your you're trying to get the attention of an officer uh, because you know what they ignore you the entire time. So you may have and, and I've seen it myself with my own eyes doing my wrongful. Uh, prosecution and conviction that I went through, uh, where you're calling the officer's name, deputy, 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 they keep walking by like you don't exist. So when you bang on the door, now all of a sudden we have a problem. It says here, when officers tried to get him into a restraint chair, he again, uh, he uh, again, he refused to comply. Miss Jeanette is heard on video pleading, help me, they're going to kill me. So if they think, if Mr. Jeanette felt he was going to be killed, don't you think he's going to be upset? Don't you think he does not want to sit in a restraint chair where you simply will be his casket and the death chamber in which you kill him? Says during the ensuing struggle, Marshall County deputies handcuffed Mr. Jeanette and wrestled him to the ground. Officers placed their weight on his back, staying on him even as he warned three times that he could not breathe. One deputy replied, you shouldn't be able uh, you shouldn't be able to breathe, you stupid expletive. This is what this is what the deputy is saying to this African American man in that jail. You don't deserve to live. So to me, that's an act of premeditation. I said this before in the George Floyd case. From the time he told Chauvin that he could not breathe, and Chauvin doubled down on this man's neck. That is an act of premeditation. Yeah, well, I mean, it shows a direct intent right there. It's intent to kill him. <laughs> it's not like, oh, this man can't breathe. Let me get up. With it. Let me show some type of pulling back. There was no pulling back because his intent was, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill you. This is the same thing. You're calling this man a stupid expletive. We can use our own minds to figure out what he called them. Uh, according to the law, she then... So this was a lady officer. Uh, according to the lawsuit, she then mocked Mr. Janet by saying, I can't breathe. Another officer allegedly laughed. At one point in the footage, an officer reminds his colleague of the dangers of positional asphyxiation and urges them to let Mr. Jeanette breathe. The legal action alleges by the time Mr. Jeanette was turned over, his body was purple and was lifeless. Jesus. Yeah. 
You killed him. And you killed him. And the lady who spoke up, God bless you, that you ought to be able to turn this man over and let him breathe. They ref- it sounds exactly like the killing of George Floyd. Absolutely. So when we ask the question, where are we today? We're nowhere better. We're worse. You're just another dead African-American. That's all you are. Well, and I think you need to look even deeper into the criminal justice system. I remember when Senator Ted Stevens uh, of Alaska, uh, the investigation showed that they, in a very widespread fashion, multiple prosecutors and agents knew that Stevens, there was evidence Stevens didn't commit the crime, yet they continued and just like, well, you're just going to put him in prison because because you have the power to do it. So that is exactly uh, that just points to the, to how deep this problem is. When a prosecutor and multiple prosecutors can know they have evidence that you didn't commit a crime, yet they still pursue a prison sentence and a conviction against you. What do you expect when you get to prison? This is the same ethos that exists in prosecutors, agents, these people. It's, it's abuses of power with no accountability. No, nothing hardly ever happens to anybody. If you think it doesn't exist at the prosecutor level, at the judicial level, you're just completely fooling yourself. And uh, so you have to look across the board. There are deep, deep problems with people who work in the criminal justice system uh, and, and, and they're drunk on power and, and can use power in a sadistic manner without any accountability. Sam said, Kendrick, excuse me, let me come back to you, Sam. Kendrick, your thoughts? Yeah, I was just saying, thinking as you're telling this story, you hear, what, you, you hear it from like an outsider's position. And the one thing I, I kind of cued in on, this man they killed, I don't know what crime he committed, you know. And possibly not even the prison guard. So why do you put every inmate or person in this scenario that you think broke the law or is in prison? Why do you instantly think the worst of them? Because to make the statement of you don't deserve to breathe, you dehumanize this man. Often he's not a man anymore. He's whatever you perceive him as because he's in prison right now. And that thing in his mind is like it gives me the right to treat you worse than an animal. Oh. So it, it's, it's as David said, there's a, there's a problem in our country that you have people who initially police were serve and protect. Now it's turned into they believe, and, and this is just my view, that order is handled by them, and they can make a judgment call on basically a quick judgment on how they feel about you, how you should behave if I need to restrain you or if I feel like you're uh, a, a threat. All that gets to be done in a split second. And people can die and they actually know it's going to be very difficult to have the law go against me. Well, the problem you have is that what we talked about before, the abuse of discretion. And it's, in a, it's at a higher level in the institution of correctional facilities. Because no one really, the BOP simply does not care. Uh, you have former Director Samuels, uh, who could not even tell you the size of a cell in the hole or solitary confinement. He didn't know the dimensions. This is the director of the BOP? 
You don't know the size of the prison cells or the torture chambers in which your officers torture human beings? And even Lamont, when's the last time we had an updated uh, press camera inside of a federal prison? Good luck. I mean, when's the last time? I mean, we, it brings me back to the story of Michael Anderson. This man was murdered by correctional officers. And because his family uh, did not know the law, didn't know exactly what uh, was acceptable, one thing they did know is that their son, Billy Anderson, came on this show twice. And her son was doing, had two years left to do. This man wasn't doing a life sentence where he would snap off and take his life. He was talking about having uh, uh, times with his son to go hunting, to go fishing, all the things that he liked to do. And then his mother comes to the visitation room and sees scars on his face. His lip is busted. This is an abuse of power. And you would think, well, surely with the world watching, the death of George Floyd, surely attitudes and actions would change. I'm going to play a clip right now of a poet that ended up being murdered uh, by police officers. Let's play the clip. We'll get you. We'll talk about it on the other side of this. Let's play it. In southeast Washington, uh, cops got a call for a disturbance. And it's interesting because it was not exactly cops. They were private police officers, and they uh, got a report about a assault in progress in a residential building. They go get Alonzo Smith. He's 27 years old. Uh, and they bring him in. Um, uh, here's where the trouble starts. Uh, they handcuffed him. Here, and we'll go to the rest of the story from the news inside. Smith was found handcuffed, unconscious, and not breathing, police said. He was transported to a hospital where he later died. Now, we don't know what happened to him that causes death, so not right to speculate. I have no idea. Literally. How would I know? It's not in the news. I don't have tape of it. I don't know what happened. Okay. But um, do uh, African-Americans die in custody more than uh, other races in this country? Yes, I have the facts on that at the end of this video. So hold, okay? Uh, but now this is when uh, normally racists would step in. Um, sorry to call you what you are, um, for those of you who would say this stuff. Um, oh, yeah, but Southeast D.C., that's pretty dangerous place. He's a young black guy, he's 27 years old. God knows what he did. You know, the implication is he had it coming, that he should have somehow died while being handcuffed. Um, and so let's go to the record and find out what he was found. Well, they found his bio online, and he said he was working in a private school assisting with special needs youth and finishing his social work degree. Ooh, that's sound. Okay, now, he doesn't just say that. It's true. Uh, we've got quotes from his colleagues in a second. He was also so dangerous uh, that he was a poet. And he wrote poetry. He's one called The Road that he wrote. Dream freely with a life at my own pace, carelessly happy, released of my hate. Who can say they don't wish on this star, a star so bright and promising yet so far? Hmm, that seemed very dangerous. Uh, now, we go to his colleagues that worked with him uh, in the facility where they help special needs kids. Smith was, one quote, one hell of a great worker who kept the kids smiling and did his job right. Uh, Alonzo wrote very recently, just a couple of days ago, I'm all in for these kids. I will be at work with my smile and anxious to hear Mr. Smith from the students. Bless my soul. Again, don't, 
Don't get carried away and thinking, oh, they killed him or something. We don't know anything about that. He, maybe he had a heart attack. We don't, we don't know anything about that. Okay. But does this happen disproportionately to African-Americans? Yes, it does. So first off, you know that unarmed people who are shot, unfortunately, disproportionately African-American. Uh, African-Americans are heavily overrepresented among the dead in that category at about one in four. That has doubled their percentage of the population. You might have heard that uh, from all the news uh, about uh, African-Americans who are being shot when they're unarmed, right? But you might not have heard the stats about what happens to African-Americans in custody. So here, here's that. And according to The Guardian, African-Americans have been disproportionately frequent victims of death by taser and in custody, comprising 38% and 32% of all victims. So even though African-Americans are between 12 and 13% of the population, they're about one-third of the people who are killed in custody. Well, there you have it. Uh, troubling uh, commentary on this one. The facts are the facts. And for people to say, oh, the assumption, as David alluded to earlier, well, they must have done something. They made the statement in the death of George Floyd. Well, he's a big guy. Didn't deserve to die. Doesn't matter. What his size is, he showed no threat. I saw the video. I saw him in the the grocery store. He was smiling. So what does it mean to call a guy, well, he was big. They said the same thing about Eric Gardner. Well, he's a big guy. Well, you have big white guys. But you feel a need to murder to choke out Eric Gardner? For selling cigarettes on a New York street corner? There's no threat. I saw the video when Eric Gardner put his hands up and say, man, why are you bothering me? His hands were up. He had no weapons. They still killed him. Where are we as a country? Since the death of George Floyd, we are worse off than we were. You have a gridlock Congress that will do nothing other than push their agenda with the George Floyd legislation, and it is gridlock. They can't even get it passed in the, in the, in the Congress. That should tell you something. But during the death of George Floyd, as David says all the time, it's a political op. Photo op. How do we look? How do we sound? The proof's in the pudding. We're no better today than we were since the death of George Floyd. So I'm going to come back to you. Let's bring our guest on. I know he's limited on time tonight. Uh, Eric Reinhardt. He's a political and medical anthropologist. Um, I tell you what, he's got a lot to say. He's also a resident physician at Northwestern University in Chicago. Uh, Eric, Mr. Reinhardt, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Mr. Reinhardt, is, I don't know how much of the show you've heard thus far. Uh, this is some troubling stuff that we, we are seeing uh, by police officers, correctional officers, deputy sheriffs, 
Uh, and we were hoping when we started this series, where are we since the death of George Floyd? Has the country healed? Yeah. Has the country come any closer to a non-racist uh, society? Have we made any progress since the world marched in protest in the streets of their said countries and cities and towns and villages about the death of George Floyd? I'm starting to run across a situation that, you know what, we don't see any major change. And the folks, even worse, in correctional, at which we're focusing on tonight, those that are in prison, those that are uh, in county jails dying at the hand of deputies. And the, the last story I read is absolutely with Mr. Jeanette um, dying uh, and said, you shouldn't be able to breathe. Talk to us. Introduce yourself, uh, uh, Mr. Reinhardt, and, and give me your thoughts on this as we open this dialogue tonight. Yeah, thank you. Um, well, yeah, as you said, I'm a physician and an anthropologist. And particularly during the pandemic, I've been focusing on doing research on COVID-19 in jails and prisons, and particularly how lack of effective policy to protect incarcerated people ends up producing essentially epidemic engines in these facilities that fuel outbreaks in surrounding communities, and particularly in communities of color that are disproportionately policed, arrested, and incarcerated. Um, so everything you've just been saying resonates very much with what I've been thinking about for the last, well, at least year and a half every single day, but for much yes. longer as well. It also makes me think of a, a piece that just came out today, I believe, in The Lancet, which is one of the two most important medical journals in the world, they looked at an analysis of deaths in custody from 1980 to 2019 in the U.S. and found that 17,000 more deaths than were reported were found in their analysis. So they looked at death certificates and then also the, uh, the, the stats kept by organizations who track police killings. So for as bad oh. as it is in the U.S., in reality, it's actually far worse. And we know very well who's most affected by that, Latino and black men in particular, who, who were dying in police custody and their deaths going unreported. So the disparities are even worse than known. The number of deaths is far worse than known. We have a real um, problem, obviously. It's a structural problem. It's not about bad apples or, or one-off events. This is a systematic structural violence that's perpetrated every single day in the U.S. Um, yeah. That's um, those numbers are are very troubling, and we know it at, at a point. Uh, the truth and the true numbers are never truly reported uh, because right. of what folks uh, will ultimately begin to think. Because we always want to hide behind, well, America's not that bad. We got the greatest system in the world. Uh, we're not really that bad. We have some bad apples, as you just alluded to, but in reality, we have a systematic culture issue and culture is one of the hardest things to break or to change in society because people it's the culture is embedded in not only society but it's in the hearts and the minds of individuals and so you have people that will say well um as as, as uh, david said well maybe you know they did something wrong you know as i said earlier about george Floyd, well he's a big guy he he's yeah. He had to be somewhat threatening. The danger of that, and I want your thoughts on that, Mr. Reinhardt, is mm. how do you change culture? 
If, I mean, if, if, if a man can be seen on national television killed, suffocated right. with somebody's knee on his neck as he cries for his mama, who passed two years prior to this incident, and what you can you say— know, I'm a, Mm-hmm. Go ahead, sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead, Mr. Reinhardt. I was saying, you know, my training is as an anthropologist. The object of study for anthropologists is culture that has been for 200 years. For the last 40 years, anthropologists have really been making apologies for the way that their own work was complicit with, remains complicit with colonialism, racism, and using cultural explanation to cover over structural economic violence. I have, in part because of my affiliation with this discipline of anthropology that has this history, I have a reluctance to kind of embrace cultural explanation. It's not that culture isn't really important. Clearly it is. But the economic realities that are structuring what we can call cultural attitudes are really important and are very addressable. As you say, it's very hard to change culture, and cultural attitudes are real and consequential. But you know it's not that hard, actually, to change economic realities with policy leaders that can be implemented tonight if our policymakers are willing to have the courage to stand up to do what needs to be done to change inequality in America, including racial inequality in America. So there is intense racial aggression and violence that we've seen under Trump long before, and we see still now. Much of that has to do, in my view, with a frustration with a broken system in America where we have growing massive inequality. You have Jeff Bezos' and Bill Gates and Warren Buffett's alongside incredible rates of homelessness, of hunger, of poverty, of repeat incarceration for reasons that are associated with poverty. A huge proportion of people who are incarcerated in the U.S. and harassed by police are in contexts that are determined by lack of access to housing, food, healthcare, mental health care, all these things. So I think a lot of the racial hostility we have in the U.S. needs to be addressed by addressing root causes, root causes which include a racist culture, which has been embedded in the foundation of America from its inception, but also profound economic quality that produces uh, an aggression that looks for an outlet. It looks for a scapegoat. It looks for somebody to hate. So economic inequality fuels the racial hatred that we see on display in police killings, in American carceral policy, in you know, the events around January 6th at the Capitol, in rallies for Trump, etc. If we don't muster a robust, ambitious policy response to this, not just kind of talking about it on talk shows or on op-eds and you know decrying racist American culture, but if we don't have a real substantive material policy redress, I don't think we're going to be making any progress. I think it's going we're going to be deepening our problems, um, and this sure. ultimately affects everyone. I mean, we have a, a racist country that has that disproportionately harms people of color. You have disproportionate poverty for people of color, particularly Black Americans, Indigenous Americans, and, and uh, Black Americans or Latinos, but but during the pandemic we see that American inequality doesn't just affect those populations; it affects everybody. Because if yes, you don't protect the health and welfare of everybody, you produce a system that puts everybody in harm's way. Because infectious disease doesn't care what color you are or where you live; 
it's it's coming for you. We live in a in a world where this pandemic will not be our last pandemic. Now it's unfortunate that we'd have to appeal to people's own crude self-interest in order to address inequality. But if that's what it takes, let's do it. <laughs> and no, and people's self-interest, economic self-interest, health self-interest is deeply implicated in American inequality. So, yeah, I don't know. Do you, what, what are your thoughts on this? <laughs> I don't mean to monopolize. No, 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 no. Please, uh, your thoughts and, and your position uh, is, is, is very informative. Uh, based upon your experience and what you do, uh, I mean, all, all you can say to that is absolutely true. Uh, what's being said. What I'd like to do, uh, Mr. Ryan, I'm going to play a clip that shows really uh, something that happened in a, in a county jail. This is an African-American man who yeah. simply asked one question. He asked for help. The clip will tell you where it went, and I'm going to get your thoughts on it as we go down this road. Let's play the clip. officers to please help him. He said, I can't breathe. On the video, you'll see that he is a little bigger than others. But what caught me and struck me so bad is when he was in the shower saying, I'm sorry. Not because he had done anything. He feared for his life. This, to me, is the most disgusting act 
and it's constant within our prison and our county jail system. So I agree with you, Mr. Reinhardt. We have a major problem. They left him, put him in his room and shut the door where he went into cardiac arrest, where he died. No medical attention to the man when he said, I can't breathe. No medical professionals came in. Because he's just another dead African-American. And he's begging for He's begging for his life. He's begging. Please. I can't breathe. Please. Give me your thoughts, please, Mr. Reinhardt. I almost, I feel reluctant to even speak after something like that. But the fact is, as you're pointing out, this is actually happening constantly. Right now, one of the big, for the last two weeks, one of the biggest national news issues, international news issues, has been the horrific cruelty at Rikers Island yes. in New York. Their massive uh, understaffing issues, not because they don't employ enough people, but because the guards and the other staff at the jail are simply com- not coming to work. Uh, they have a union that protects them uh, from any basically accountability to do what their jobs are. Um, but all this attention to Rikers has kind of obscured the fact that what's happening to Rikers, which is horrific and has actually been happening for a very long time, it's reached new heights, but the systematic cruelty and violence and neglect at Rikers, where over 12 people, or not, or I believe it's now 12 people, have died at Rikers this year in custody due to neglect. This is happening all over the country. In Georgia right now, for example, in prisons in Georgia, you have a lot of facilities that are operating with 70% staff vacancy rates. That means there are 30 people doing a job designed for 100 people. And that 100 people was already inadequate to producing safe environments that respect the constitutional rights of incarcerated people who shouldn't be incarcerated by and large to begin with. But once you are incarcerated, you actually fall under a very particular category of person in the United States. This is a pretty conservative country. Healthcare is not a right for the average person in America. There's one category of person for which healthcare is a constitutional right, and that's incarcerated people in America. But there is no system for ensuring that these kinds of rights, the right to a safe environment, the right to proper health care is enforced. So what you have is situations like what you just played in this clip, with, with which I'm not familiar, unfortunately, or maybe for my sake, fortunately, because it sounds horrific. But this kind of thing is happening all the time. You have people going to diabetic crises, diabetic ketoacidosis from which you can die because there is no guard manning the unit in which their house even gives them the insulin that they need. You have people having heart attacks and not even found for hours because nobody is there or one person is manning the unit, so the, the cell block, so nobody is there to go assist because they have to stay in place. This is happening all over the country at jails and prisons, which have been for a very long time unsafe environments characterized by systematic neglect, woefully inadequate health care that violates the constitutional rights of people who are incarcerated. But now during the pandemic, you've had so many people get sick and die. So many people uh, walk out on the job, so many people who are holding sick outs that you have – I hesitate to use this term because it makes it sound like what you had before was okay, but you have a crisis. 
you have a worsening crisis on top of an existing crisis that is mass incarceration in America. So this kind of cruelty, which is not just a moral issue, this is a legal issue, even as judges and our courts refuse to act to enforce the Constitution. I mean, you, you have a, a horrific problem that is indescribable. I, I mean, th these are, you can say they're human rights violations. You can say that jail administrators are breaking the law. You can say that people are dying. It doesn't capture what's happening. People are dying in the worst circumstances ever. They've been subjected to extraordinary risks during the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, and it's, it's appalling. We need, there's only one solution to this. You, you, you can't hire enough staff to make these places safe because they are intrinsically unsafe. They're intrinsically characterized by violence. The only real solution to what's happening at Rikers, what's happening in Georgia, what's happening in North Carolina and California, all around the country, is a mass decarceration program. We have spent trillions of dollars over four, more than four decades to build the American system of mass incarceration that holds 25% of the world's incarcerated people in the richest country in the world that has only 4% of the total global population. We incarcerate at seven times the rate of peer nations. The only way to fix this, the only, the only way to build a system that even like remotely resembles justice is a mass decarceration program where we use mass clemency, we use legislative changes to sentencing laws to dismantle a system that has violence built into its core. The clip that you played, I think, is a very clear illustration of what it does to people. And, and how anyone, how our lawmakers, how our judges, how just regular voters can allow this system to persist is, it, it, I was going to say it's beyond me, but human beings are cruel. <laughs> um, it's not quite right. beyond me, but it's, it's frustrating. It's very frustrating. Well, Mr. Reinhardt, I've, I've been alerted by my team that uh, you're, you have a, a standing engagement or appointment that you have to get to. Is that correct? I, I teach a course right now that I've taken a little break from, but uh, but it's a pleasure. Okay. I don't know if pleasure is quite the right word. It's a privilege to speak to you, and I appreciate you having me on. Well, please uh, let you, please let me let you know we'd love to have you back. I think you have so much more to say uh, that our listeners need to hear. We're going to visit this again. Uh, I extend an invitation. Hopefully, we can catch you at a, at, a, at a better time for you where we can definitely have a conversation. We'll definitely be in touch with you offline, but thank you for taking time tonight. Uh, what you've said tonight could fill an entire two-hour show. Uh, that's just the way it is. Uh, but your information, your experience, and your expertise on this matter uh, has definitely uh, moved me in a good direction. I can tell you that, I'm sure, to our listeners. Uh, because unless we get truth and facts, nobody's going to fight this, uh, this war effectively. So what you've added to this conversation, I cannot say thank you enough. Uh, but please be open to coming back. We'd love to have you back on our show. It'd be my privilege. Thank you. Okay. Thank you, Mr. Reinhardt. Bye. I really wish she had more time. Uh, Samson, your thoughts on Mr. Reinhardt? I mean, he, he brought a wealth of, of information to the conversation. You know, um, I believe Dave and I were sitting here looking at the, uh, the article he was talking about when uh, that 12th person just since January died. The, the most recent person to die in Rikers was a 24-year-old young man. I mean, are you kidding me? We're talking about we're we're not even into. We're, I mean, we're just not ending the ninth month of the year. Twelve people have died in Rikers alone. We're not counting anywhere else. Just Rikers, and I mean, and that's too many people. 
needlessly dying in county lockup. And I mean, it's disgusting. We see case after case, story after story of inmates of color being brutalized by guards, being given no hope, no chance, no nothing. And then we wonder why our society is the way it is, where there's this whole, um, you know, constant recidivism of people, they get out, but they go right back, you know, because we don't do anything to actually help those that have been incarcerated or labeled as a felon or labeled as anything else, they don't have a chance. So they go back out and they only, they can only do what they know. Well, the clip we played, I cannot get that gentleman's uh, voice out of my head. When I tell you the slaughter of the innocent in that moment, he's asking you, who has power over him to help him. He's begging for his life. He's pleading. And, and you got to, we're listening to a crime happen in progress. Absolutely. That's a crime. Yeah. And because this system is what it is, and because people refuse to cry out against it, um, I can imagine what that man felt when they shut the door to his cell and he could not breathe. We do animals better than that. Well, one thing, one thing I think we have to, <clears throat> America has to accept, accept the truth and uh, Mr. Reinhardt touched on it. This is an evil nation. And until you realize and quit patting yourself on the back and waxing self-righteous, you're never going to change. Uh, Reinhardt discussed mass decarceration. Even if you mass decarcerate, people still have uh, the same view of people who commit crimes. And I can understand a certain uh, a certain uh, anger and disposition for people who commit violent crime, but. It's an estimated 77 million people out of 330 million people in this country have felonies. Not all of them go to prison, but a felony, it creates uh, a lot of problems uh, for a person in a society that views people this way. And the prison guards and police couldn't uh, engage in this evil conduct if they didn't have a nation who enabled and, them. Yeah, and, and a society at large that accepts this behavior and is not just wholly outraged from these types of things going on. And, and one final note I'll say, and it's it's true positive, nobody ever asks, and, and we make this point uh, periodically, nobody asks in this country about a wrongful conviction. There is just no interest that how did a, a citizen, an innocent person, get put in prison or get put to death? And there are no serious questions and, and uh, absolute outrage by society that this actually happened? And, and David, you couldn't even get into the American lexicon de-incarceration. That, no. would, that would be a political nuclear war. I mean, to try to say, hey, let's look for a better way. Instead of putting all these people in prison, that would never—I couldn't see that in my lifetime. That being a serious consideration well, in the United States. Well, we're gonna—we're gonna come back. We got comments from Samson, Dave Zapolo, from Demetrius Harper. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, where are we? Is the question. 
We'll get comments from Clint Stewart as well. We live in tragic circumstances in this country. I am saddened at a very high level from what we continue to see. And if you got 12 people dead at Rikers, I'm going to tell you about Khalif Browder. You would think change would have come then. They come on, these people say, oh, we want to shut Rikers down. It's inhumane treatment of people. Twelve killings this year alone. There is no change. There is no change. Because everybody has become political. What's politically correct? That we march a little while, we cry out, we get news conferences, we get with other people in politics and think for some reason that will constitute change. It is a tragedy. These people continue to die like this. We'll deal with it on the side of the break. This is AJC Radio. We'll be right back. For a kid whose mom or dad is in prison, life is tough. Now, add a wrongful conviction to that. Life just got a little bit tougher. Trying to explain to friends why mom or dad is not at the school play or at the ball game is something that no kid should ever be faced with. Especially if mom or dad is innocent. Ladies and gentlemen, get involved today to stop the epidemic of wrongful convictions by remembering a just cause with a monthly, annual, or one-time donation. You can help in the fight against wrongful convictions. Call a just cause today, 1-855-529-4252. We seek justice for the children. As they go to bed at night and mom's not there, dad's not in the other room to make them feel safe. Not because dad or mom did anything wrong, because justice could not be found. Join us for the children, for they truly are our future. I'm a mother. I'm a father. I'm a sister, a registered nurse. I serve my country in the United States military. I'm your neighbor. I sit next to you at church. And my child was arrested, held in custody, questioned without my knowledge, exposed to violence, witnessed to rape, placed in solitary confinement, unable to call or see me, shackled to a wall, beaten, sentenced as an adult at age 17, Sentenced as an adult at age 16. Sentenced as an adult at age 15. We felt lost. Isolated. Ostracized. Misjudged. Terrified. And in the absence of all hope, my child took his own life. And then I found the Alliance for Youth Justice. They gave me the support and resources to get through one of the most difficult times in my life. Now I know I'm not alone. And neither are you. Now we have a voice. Now we have power. In numbers. In numbers. In numbers. We can make a difference. 
There are approximately 2 million children in the juvenile and criminal justice system in this country. These are the faces of those families. If you are the family member of a child who has been in the justice system, or if you are someone who supports this movement and is ready to make a difference, visit the Campaign for Youth Justice at www.campaignforyouthjustice.org. Good morning, students, and welcome to Career Day. I hope you're excited to hear about all the great things you can do when you grow up. Hi, everyone. I'm Emily. I'm super excited to introduce my dad because... He's my hero. When I was little, my dad was away a lot. But I was okay with that because he was doing this really important work, driving ambulances in Iraq. Now he's at home, which is great for me because I get to see him every day now. And he's still the biggest hero I know because he kills all the ambulances and the fire engines where to go and rescue people when there's an emergency. I'm so proud of him. He's awesome. He's my dad. If your service-connected disability prevents you from continuing in your civilian career, Voc Rehab offers counseling, training with a living allowance, education, and other services to help prepare you for your next mission. We know you care. Now is time. Time to change the face of justice. Did you know that minority and youth participation in juries is extremely low to non-existent? The incidence of youth and minority offenders facing trials have exploded. Youth and minorities are not being represented as they should be. We must represent for people to get fair trials. If you acquire a state ID or driver's license, it allows you to register to vote. And it allows you to become eligible for jury service. If you're 18, a U.S. citizen with a state ID or driver's license and registered to vote, you're eligible to be called for jury duty. If called and selected, make it your duty to serve. We can't get justice without you. Change. 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 Change the face of justice. Check your local county or state jury service website for further details. Odds of becoming an astronaut, 1 in 13,200,000. Odds of being struck by lightning, 1 in 576,000. Odds of dating a supermodel, 1 in 88,000. Odds of bowling a perfect game, 1 in 11,500. Odds of being trapped in an elevator, 1 in 24,528. Odds of catching a ball at a major league game, 1 in 563. Odds of an injury from shaving, 1 in 6,585. Odds of tripping while texting, 1 in 10. Odds of getting cancer in your lifetime, 1 in 2 men, 1 in 3 women. It's up to us to change the odds for our generation. For the ones we love. For our future. If you don't like the odds, stand up. Stand up to cancer. Say goodbye to affordability and say hello to losing control. Discover Price Gougesol, the latest outrageously expensive drug from Big Pharma. It's impossible to afford and reverses the ability to pay other bills. Because drug companies raise prices to pay for commercials like this one, side effects may include overdrawn bank accounts, bad credit scores, higher health care costs, 
children who don't get Christmas presents, and in some cases, the need to stop taking your medicine. If you experience any of these side effects, contact your financial advisor right away. Out-of-control drug costs are no joke. Yet nine of the ten biggest pharma companies spend more on advertising than research and development. Let's solve the cost crisis now. Visit csrxp.org. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to AJC Radio tonight, as we have gone down roads that are very, very disturbing. As we were talking here during the break, it is clear that this country has a major problem. We have devalued human life. And African Americans, who care if it was white, black, red, yellow, lives, every single life matters. But to hear, as Mr. Reinhardt began to talk about Rikers and all that continues to go there, we talked a bit before regarding the Khalif Browder story, a, a, a story out of Rikers. So horrific. The outcome so horrible, it can take one sleep away. We're going to visit that again right now as a result of Mr. Reinhardt bringing that up. Twelve people have died this year at Rikers Island, and they still refuse to shut it down. Let's play the clip. We turn now to another tragic story about a young man who learned the hard way about the troubles plaguing America's criminal justice system. Khalif Browner was arrested at 16, never convicted of a crime, never had a trial, but spent more than three years in one of the most violent jails in the country. Tonight, here is Khalif in his own words. You're supposed, you're supposed to be innocent to prove guilty, but the way the system is, you're guilty to prove innocent. Little did we know, Khalif Browder was already dying inside the day we met him. At the easy age of 22, he'd already learned more about America's criminal justice system and endured more than any soul should ever have to. That's Khalif there on the floor inside Rikers Island, New York City's most notorious jail, beaten by a gang of fellow inmates all caught on camera. At the age of 16, he was arrested and sent here for allegedly stealing a backpack. It was like, how long earth we were beaten, stomped by the, by the correctional officers, and they were just beating on me. They were just beating on me. Beatings captured on surveillance video obtained by the New Yorker magazine, which first brought Khalif's story to light. In this video, we see him being escorted to the prison shower. He appears to speak to the guard, who in seconds is seen slamming him into a wall and then to the ground. And I cry myself to sleep because it's like, I want to go home, and it's like, they're not letting me go home. To go home, Khalif's mother, Benita Brown, needed to post bail of $3,000, money she says she just didn't have. What was your reaction when you heard that your 16-year-old boy was being sent to Rikers Island? My heart dropped. 
you know, I had heard so many horror stories about Rikers, and all I could picture was him getting hurt in there. Court records show Khalif had attempted suicide at least six times, spent 1,110 days behind bars, more than 800 of those in solitary confinement. His court date postponed more than 30 times. He endured all this having never been given a trial, never convicted of a crime. Finally, in June of 2013, all charges against Khalif were dismissed. But his experience exposed the troubled criminal justice system and the brutality of life behind bars. I think at some point, almost a reckless disregard by the prosecutors in this case. They didn't care, Byron. They saw his file. They saw that he was in jail. And he'd probably take a plea. And they were hoping he'd take a plea. They just told me that if I plead guilty, I will release from jail that same day. But I didn't do it. You're not going to make me say I did something just so I could go home. When we first met him November of last year, he was doing better, he said. Earned his GED, started classes at Bronx Community College, pulling a 3.56 GPA. But the psychological trauma from jail had taken its toll. And when he first came home, he would just walk the four corners of the driveway. You hear animals do that have been confined to a space. Yes, he did it. And I had to watch my baby go through all of that. In the last year, Khalif grew depressed, deeply paranoid. You know, deep down, I'm a mess. I feel like I'm a grown old man. And then two Saturdays ago, two years after his release from jail, Khalif Browder hanged himself with an air conditioner cord in his home in the Bronx. He was 22. I didn't know what to do. I, can you imagine finding your son and he's hanging with his head back? Khalif's death made national news and messages of outrage mixed with sympathy flooded social media. John Legend wrote in an op-ed that New York failed Khalif. Lena Dunham Instagrammed his photo and called for reform. Our interview with Khalif went viral on Facebook. What we now know is that Khalif was due in court to face new charges of disorderly conduct the week he took his own life. His family said he was scared to go back into jail. By now, the beatings he endured in Rikers have been seen millions of times online. What did Rikers do to your son? It destroyed him. It destroyed him mentally. Has anyone apologized to you from Rikers? No. From the prosecutor's office? No. What do you hope happens now? I want them to be responsible, to admit that it was their fault that my son is dead. He spent three years in, in hell. It sounds like you're in that hell now. I will be in hell until the day I die because I found my son hanging. If your child is murdered, you you have a, an immediate anger towards that person and you want that person found, you know, and, and pay for what they did to your child. It's not one person. It's a whole system that destroyed my son. And I want them all to pay. I deeply wish we hadn't lost him, but he did not die in vain. New York did away with solitary confinement for 16 and 17-year-olds. Plans were announced to fix crowded dockets in courts to ensure the right to a speedy trial. There are also calls for change to the cash bail system. Currently, only 12% of defendants in New York City make bail. We're in a quest for justice right now, Byron. Paul Prestia, who helped Khalif file his civil suit against the city, says it's not enough. Reforms are all nice and well, but admit you did something wrong here, because that was always Khalif's message. How many young men have to go through this? 
99% of the critics would talk all that junk, I promise you, they wouldn't have the courage to do the job that the correction officers do. Bernie Carrick knows the system from both sides. The former chief of the New York City Police Department, he also ran Rikers Island for years. And as a convicted felon, he spent time in solitary confinement. As someone that spent 60 days inside solitary confinement, it creates paranoia. It makes you insane. But he cautions the city against bowing to public pressure and implementing changes, he says, that could put Rikers correction officers and inmates in danger. If you take solitary confinement away from the correction officials, you're going to see a major, major increase in violence. These are kids that come from gangs. These are kids that ran the streets. I think is very dangerous. So what would you do? What, what were I your think, suggestions to improve think, Rikers Island? I think you keep that. You charge the staff that violate the law, and they're locked up. It's not hard to imagine the life he might have led if he'd made it. I have the medal hanging on my bed. You see it in the remnants of the life and the people he left behind, like Elizabeth Pyams, program director at Bronx Community College, who worked closely with Khalif. She says she's working on getting Khalif his associate degree posthumously. What do you want the world to remember of your son? To remember him for the stand-up person that he was. He was a good person. The kind of person who turned down a plea bargain on principle. whose story may help save others like him. If I would have just been guilty, then my story would have been never been heard. Nobody would have took the time to listen to me. I'd have been just another criminal. Well, there you have it. The treatment, the killing attributed to the behavior of correctional officers at Rikers Island to Mr. Reinhardt's pointing out 12 more deaths this year alone. At a gladiator camp is the best you can describe it. Samson, you had a story, and let me take that back, a real-life event that took place uh, that's very troubling. But to this conversation of where we are now since the death of George Floyd, our final conclusion for this time at least, uh, just behavior that's, that's absolutely horrendous. Uh, yeah, basically it was, it's a story out of North Carolina, uh, Forsyth County of uh, John Elliott Neville he is a, or he was, I should say, a 56-year-old black man wrongfully incarcerated uh, because he was accused of assault. No evidence, no nothing. So he's in county jail. And one night, he, his, in, or his celly says, you know, he heard him basically fall off the front or off the top bunk. And he immediately went into a seizure-like state. He was flailing on the ground. He couldn't control his body. Um, and so officers came in. And he starts begging them for his inhaler because he had come in with um, medical conditions. He had asthma, among other things. 
and they immediately, like five officers and one nurse, pile on top of this 56-year-old man who is having a seizure and immediately put him in the prone restraint. And he's there for 12 minutes going through this basically medical emergency. After he's there for 12 minutes, it takes him another 19 minutes to, after he's out of the restraints, to actually put a CPR mask on him. Because at that point, he had already passed out. They said he had already gone into a, a coma-like state. And, I mean, he's dying at this point on the ground. Now, after he begs them, after he, they, they wake him back up, he begins to beg him on, on record at least 30 times, begging for help. Telling them, hey, I can't breathe. I need help. Over an hour after... The, after he fell off the bunk, he's finally taken to the hospital, and on the way out the door, the police chief hands the paramedics a note, and I'm looking for it right here. It says, written on sheriff's office stationery, it says, call if and when there is a time of death and if an autopsy is performed. We need to know yes or no. Thank you. This man died three days after going to county jail on an accusation. Three days, and this father of five is sitting here. He is now a body count. He is now a statistic because he fell off the top bunk and, and had a seizure because inhumane people wanted to dogpile on top of a 56-year-old man who is just, he, he's not even in control of his own body. He is seething. He's puking. He's doing he can't control what's happening, and yet they show no humanity to this man. They said at one point he was even strapped to a chair with a mask over his head, begging for help, and nobody did anything to help him. They sat there and watched this man die. Now they tried to blame him. Oh, he had pre-existing medical conditions. No. They said this man, nothing that was wrong with him from a pre-existing condition caused him, would have caused him to die. He died because of the brutality that he suffered at the hands of this North Carolina Sheriff's Department. He died because there is a lack of care for humanity. There's a lack of care for colored people in this country, and there's a lack of – especially when they get behind the wall. Nobody cares that you know his kids are now suffering and fighting through the fact they're just trying to get justice for their father. Nobody cares the fact of the family that he left behind, or let me just phrase, the family that he was taken from. Nobody cares about this. All they see it as, like, the, like the, 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 the captain so clearly and callously put it, we just want to know when, the, when his time of death was so we can do our paperwork. It's an absolute horrific travesty that this kind of stuff happens day in and day out in our country. Dave, your thoughts? Well, when you look at this, it sounds so much like George Floyd because he even called out for his mother. Mama, help me, help me, help me. And this man, they, they, the officers are there saying, we're just trying to help you. They've got him strapped down in handcuffs, face down. I can't breathe. Just turn me over. No, they just leave him there. And they let him die. We see this over and over again on the outside. But on the inside, you have COs that are indifferent or just downright cruel and inhuman 
treating the inmates like they're animals. And I don't even like calling them inmates. They're still people. They just happen to be incarcerated. You look at that and you see over and over again this happens. We even have a government-sanctioned uh, torture chamber here in our own backyard at the ADX. So it's just too much. Tell us a little bit more about that, Dave. I, as an inmate, I worked at the ADX for over two years. And some of the things that I saw there were just horrendous. It was just torture. I'd be walking down the hallway, and you would hear inmates screaming. At one time, it was so loud, I thought the inmate was right behind the door that I was walking by. I looked in. There was nobody there. He had to have been at least 200 feet away from that door, and it sounded like he was right next to me. He was screaming so loud. I saw COs that would get mad because an inmate that they were preparing to extract from a cell, which means to abuse them, drag them out, and shoot tear gas into that cell, a tear gas grenade into the cell. The COs got mad when the inmate complied and decided to come out on his own. And the COs were mad that they couldn't extract them on their own. So you have COs that enjoy torturing these inmates, whether it's through verbal abuse or physical abuse or mental abuse. There was an inmate there, one of the COs told me, he would eat razor blades over, over, and over again. Well, after the first time, why are you giving him razor blades again? Because they thought it was funny. You know that's what it was. I had another CO tell me that they would strap inmates down naked for three days. 72 hours strapped down. It's like, this is too much. You can't be doing this to people. They're still human beings, but you think that they're animals. You treat them like animals and then wonder why they lash out at you when you come at them. It's mental torture. And you made the statement that, uh, as we talked earlier, you saw blood? One of, one of the strap-down rooms, which is an observation room, so it's outside of the, the normal cell area. It's outside of the lieutenant's office or somewhere where the COs can, can watch them. It's a cement slab with rings on it where they can chain the inmate down, usually on their back. And in that room, we had to clean that room. There was blood on the walls and blood on the ceiling. Well, how does that happen unless you're doing something to that inmate. What's your thoughts? Yeah, uh, this stuff is just really hard to, uh, hard to deal with, but it's the reality of, of our country. Uh, in re doing research uh, for this broadcast, uh, I uh, watched a documentary uh, called Black Power, and it showed some of the same treatment in the United Kingdom. Um, very similar uh, during the same times uh, as we had uh, uh, uprisings in America, some of the same sorts of things. And uh, unfortunately, you know, this stuff is very widespread and it's, it's whites against blacks and it goes back to slavery. It really is that mentality. It goes back to slavery and uh, the culture has not changed. It still is that hatred that's uh, systemic in our society. Oh, absolutely right. And Demetrius, your thoughts? I'm at a loss for words. This, Mr. Reinhardt mentioned that 
we are a cruel nation, and he was so absolutely correct. I wish he wasn't, but we we we've heard the stories, and I I'm very saddened that this is happening in our country. We are not the greatest country in the world. We are the most abusive country in this world, and he alluded to that earlier. And it's just very saddening, Mont, to hear these things, to hear the the account on how you can take a man's life and no one's held accountable. It's just very troubling. Take a quick break um, as we find ourselves uh, back up against the clock for our final segment. This and these conversations, no matter how hard the discussions must happen, if AJC, a just cause organization, remains silent in the midst of such troubled times and troubled actions, we would cease to be true advocates. True advocates call out, no matter how difficult these type of terrors or horrors that we see in our society, you would never think, and many of the things that are done in prisons, county jails, as we call them behind the wall, go unpublished. They're not talked about, but technology will not keep them silent. We'll address more the other side of the break. This is AJC Radio. Where are we now since the death of George Floyd? The answer to that question We are no better today than we were before he was killed in front of the whole world. This is AJC Radio. We'll be right back. You can tell a lot about someone by what they spend their money on, their priorities, their concerns, and their motives. Big Pharma says their top priority is research and development. They say that prescription drug costs are so high because they spend so much on research. But the simple truth is nine out of the 10 biggest pharma companies spend 50% more on advertising than they do on research and development. It's true. Tens of billions more. The more they spend, the clearer it becomes. Big pharma's priorities are more ads, more sales, and higher costs to you. It's time for Big Pharma to get their priorities straight. Americans deserve open and honest prescription drug pricing. Let's solve the cost crisis now. Visit CSRXP.org. Why do you ask that, kiddo? Can I play with it? No, no, absolutely not. It's not a toy. You know that. Do I? I bet it looks like one. Yeah, well, it's not. Anyway, I need it to protect you, your sister and mom. From what? From bad guys, like on TV. But what about the eight kids who get shot every day by mistake? Their daddies probably thought they were safe, too. Where'd you hear that? TV. 
Yeah, well, maybe we don't believe everything we hear on TV. Where do you keep it? <laughs> it's hidden. I bet it's on top shelf of the closet under your sweatshirt. Is it loaded? It's not. I, I keep the bullets. In the boots with the red bases and the chest beside the bed? I haven't found them yet, but I'm sure I can. You always told me to be curious. Remember when I found my Christmas gift? I'm a good climber, you know. No. No, that's not what I meant. Look, I, I need to be ready if someone breaks in. So what about when it's just me and Mom? You taught me to be brave. I could use a gun to protect her. No, Justin, I promise. I'll teach you how to handle a gun when you're old enough. What if I don't make it to old enough? I could get bullied and decide it's too much for me. It would be so easy with our gun. Our gun? Nobody. My gun. But it is our gun in our home. Happens all the time. I'll make sure that doesn't happen. I'm always here for you. But, Dad, you're not always here. Temperatures, we should reach our normal high, about 82 degrees by this afternoon. Clear skies tonight with a low near 7. Increasing cloudiness tomorrow, sticky and humid with a high. I wish I was in school. If only I had a math test today. Or a book report to give. I wish I was in school. I'll stay after class. I'll clean the chalkboard. I'll do extra homework. I'll skip recess. I wish I was in school. I wish I was in school. I really wish I was in school. School ends, but free lunches for your kids don't have to. Find your local food bank at feedingamerica.org slash summer meals for help. Together, we're feeding America. There was a shooting. When news and headlines following an act of gun violence fade away, who's left? The families. Gun violence is real. It affects more people than you would ever imagine. Losing a family member is one of the worst things that anyone can ever go through. This is something that's often forgotten, like what happens to the people after the incident. Although our country struggles to agree on a long-term solution to gun violence, we can all agree on one thing. Any family suffering a loss as a result of gun violence needs our support. Focus needs to shift to the human being. These continue to happen, and more people have join the club that we didn't ask to be a part of. There's families that are not getting the help that they need. It seems like there's nobody really rallying around the people who have experienced the hardship that we have. So many families in need, and I can really empathize with that. They need our love, compassion, and hope. Life for these families may not get any easier. Their lives are never going to be the same, ever. But with the support of others, they will get stronger. We can help. The Christina Grimmie Foundation, building a legacy of hope and inspiration.
Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to AJC Radio tonight. To be very honest with you, tonight has been one of the most difficult evenings of this show as we've talked about injustice a lot. We've talked about abuse in prisons and jails a lot. But tonight it brings a different sound because of where people may have assumed we have gone since the death of George Floyd. As Mr. Reinhardt said so correctly, we're in a bad way. This country is in a bad way. We live at a point in a state of denial that does nobody any good. We are dealing with these issues as we deal with another type of abuse regarding vaccinations. We will address those issues next Thursday on this show as we revisit the vaccination problem, the forcing of vaccinations problem, the violation of one's right to choose problem. That'll be next week. Please tune in to that show. But tonight we continue. You do not realize how embedded in our culture this type of behavior has become. It has become a major problem. I'll play a clip for you right now. Dealing with police brutality. All the things that led us up to the death and the killing of George Floyd. And we see no change. Very troubling. Let's play the clip. It doesn't, what do you mean you, if you know? Call his parents, yeah, you can't do that. Okay. You can't okay. do well, it. What's your name? Hey, 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 hey. Okay. What, what's your name and your back number? What's your, watch out. What's your name and your back number? What's your name and your back number? Okay, and, and what's your name and back number, ma'am? Whoa, whoa, you're touching me. You're touching me. You, you can't do this. Yeah, yeah, go get him. You can't do this. Look at that. You're doing this to a minor. Remember, you guys are doing this to a minor. Remember that. You guys are doing this to a minor. It doesn't matter. You guys are doing this to a little-ass kid. His parents should be here. You guys shouldn't be touching on him like that. Hey, 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 watch out. Watch out. Don't be choking him like that. What are you doing? Get your hands off his neck, bro. What are you doing? Get your hands off his neck. You can't be doing that. Get back, sir. Yo, don't touch me. Don't touch me. Back up. Don't touch me. Don't touch me. I will arrest you for Don't touch me. For what? For what? For what? For what? What can you arrest me for? For what? What can you arrest me for? What the hell? Don't touch me, please. I'm, I'm asking you, please don't touch me. You're not a cop. Don't touch me. Please. Don't touch me. You're not a cop. I'm asking you. You can record from the distance. Okay. Okay? I just need you to keep your distance. Don't run. Look at that. Look at that. I'm on the record. Police brutality. Excuse me. No, no, I'm not going to do it. I know. Stay back up. You're right. You're right. 
You know, I'm not doing nothing to the for me. Come on, Going around this way, all right, sir? Yeah, so I, you can come over here. Yeah. All this for a little kid, bro. All this for a little kid. All this for a little kid. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Michigan officers pointing their guns at an 11-year-old girl handcuffing her as she screamed for her mother to help. And what the police chief is now saying tonight, here's ABC's Alex Press. This hard-to-watch video sparking outrage tonight. No! No! You're not going to jail or anything. No! Those screams from 11-year-old Honesty Hodges. The incident, captured on the officer's body cam, began when the elementary school student, her mother, and aunt were leaving a home in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Police incorrectly believed the suspect, sought in an attempted murder case, was hiding inside. Weapons drawn, the girl, terrified, starts crying as the officer cuffs her. I didn't do anything wrong. I've never been in trouble by the Grand Rapids police. Her mother demanding answers. You got us all into cop cars, have my child scared. Like, why? For what? The Grand Rapids police chief admitting the young girl was not treated properly. Listening to the 11-year-old's response uh, makes my stomach turn. It, it makes me physically nauseous. And, David, the police chief says the 11-year-old should not have been treated as an adult and says there's an internal investigation into the officer's actions underway. David? Alex Perez tonight. Thank you, Alex.
will have people that will come out and say, we should be optimistic about our criminal justice system. It does not deserve to be done to adults. And now this culture has degraded itself to abuse children. You hear the cry of an 11-year-old. There was a story that we did on one of our shows where an 8-year-old, I believe a 6- or 8- 7-year-old girl was put in the back of a police car and handcuffed, taken from school. No parents to stop it. And she begged the officer saying, please, I don't want to go in the car. He said, well, you're going. These are people who we say we entrust to our children for their safety. Let me make this point. I happen to know myself personally. Some good police officers out here. Went to school with one of them who I came across many years ago. Man of high integrity. Um, This is a sad, sad case. Samson, you heard that clip. I'm going to get everybody's thought on it. How bad is this situation? Well, I mean, it's it's absolutely gut-wrenching when you hear, I mean, this child, she is 11 years old and screaming in absolute terror that she is being drugged to the back of a cop car in front of her family. And she's in there, she's like, I've never been in trouble with the police here. And she... She had to be confused. She had to be shook up because the fact of the matter is, like, you have, again, you have this middle schooler who is being now escorted to the back of a cop car for absolutely no reason. To the little girl that you were talking about, I think she was, like you said, eight or nine years old. They called the police on her because I think she kicked a classmate, um, either in the classroom or on the playground. We have taken this way too far when it comes to policing we're now we're not down to policing grade schoolers, grade schoolers. Now, I remember whenever I was a kid, I was in, you know, kindergarten, grade school, all the way up through middle school and high school. Getting kicked in the shin is not it is not an offense that warrants having a police officer down there. The teachers or the parents step in. They handle it. They say, hey, this is not how you behave and you go on about your day. But I guarantee because these young ladies were young ladies of color. Then society and their schools or whomever says, oh, it's okay. This this thing with the 11-year-old, they say, oh, there was a su- suspected uh, drug dealer whatever inside the house. Was the drug dealer described as an 11-year-old girl? If not, why are you handcuffing her? Why are you traumatizing this child? And you wonder why, they, why she's going to probably grow up to be an adult that has no trust for the police, for our judicial system. And then, God forbid... 
she be a woman in crisis that actually needs that help. She would be fearful to call the police for help because they might be worse than the situation that she's in. I mean, they have no idea the long-term damage they're doing by traumatizing these young people at such an early age. There's a polo. When you look at this, this is just outrageous. How can you do this to such a young child? But again, it's something we hear over and over again. And I'm getting sick of seeing these things and people are not outraged. How is this happening? You have protests for silly things sometimes and something like this, people need to be fired. They need to be suspended. They need to do whatever needs to be done to stop this from happening. I'm just saying most likely I'd have been in jail that evening. But if that was my daughter, I wouldn't let you would have been that's uncalled for. I mean, and how can someone just sit by and take someone else's kid screaming? This this kid, this child, like she woke up for, and is in the middle of a nightmare, and you're just letting it go. So, I, as a, if I was her parent, I couldn't have took it. They wouldn't have touched my kid after that point, and I probably been in jail that night. Demetrius, that's the world we live in, unfortunately, Lamont. And it's like I said, I can't just get over. The screaming of a who does who does that? Who does that to a child? And when does it stop? When when does America, as we said earlier, become outraged that it could be your son, your daughter, your kid? But until you see, before you empathize, you must walk in another man's shoes or woman's shoes. And that's unfortunately in this country does not happen because if it was happening, this would not be happening to our children. Yeah, two things. I agree with Samson. Uh, the schools, their policy, calling the police on an 11-year-old, I mean, that's, that's absolutely ridiculous. And then the police, you know, I mean, what kind of training do you get? Uh, you're going to report to the scene. You're going to call it in when you get there. Uh, let let your boss know we got an 11-year-old here. Uh, why did they call the police? Police is for grown-ups uh, with real dire emergency situations. You know, you call the police. Uh, this is not something that police uh, should be called on. And uh, the the community, you just you're just injecting really really bad problems in your community with the neighbors and everybody else. If you're a teacher and you're calling law enforcement on an 11 year old child, whatever that kid did. Well, look, it's getting to the point, and what makes the statement that. To the point, you know, you call the police in time of an emergency. Uh, that bus has left the station to a lot of communities. Call the police. Call the police so they can make you the criminal. Call the police so they can target you as the person that called the police. And treat you like you committed a crime. The trust in our law enforcement community is dwindling. It is what it is. These are the facts. If I call, I forget the gentleman's name, we talked about on this show, the family members called regarding a young man, an older gentleman who was mentally challenged, that had walked out of this house, and he was lost. Well, I don't know whether suffering from Alzheimer's or whatever it might have been, dementia. He was naked. They called, would you help my family member? 
The next thing they knew, their family member was dead, laying on the street, naked, with a plastic bag over his head, in total compliance with what the police asked him to do. So to call the police, we're in troubled times. And I can tell you right now, just calls, AJC Radio will probably visit this topic when it's two years from the death of George Floyd, three years, and so on. Where are we now? We shall see. But as long as power is giving to people who, who abuse it, I'm mighty afraid our forecast will not be good then either. Until we demand change and cry out, as Dave Zappolo alluded to here, where is the outrage? Where is it? Or as we, as a country, have become so callous to the reality of the, of the challenges we face. Very special thank you to Mr. Reinhardt for joining us tonight for his perspective to shine light on this very troubling issue. To all of our listeners around the world and around the globe, a very special thank you for tuning in tonight. Join us next week as we visit the abuse of vaccinations. The next chapter, and I got news for you, it's getting worse. It's getting worse. Until next time, America, good night. This is AJC Radio, and we sign off.